There is no health without mental health. Hi, welcome to Beyond Madness. I'm your host, Professor Christopher Paul Sabo. I'm a psychiatrist, and this podcast series features psychiatrists in conversation with myself discussing mental health issues, issues that affect our society on a daily basis. Emotional issues can affect you or someone in your life at any time. The intention of this podcast series is to give you a better understanding of psychiatry. Beyond Madness is proudly brought to you by Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave. Today's topic is genetics and psychiatry, and on today's podcast, I have the pleasure of interviewing two psychiatrists, Dr. Kurbis Rue and Dr. Lee Janet. Kurbis is a psychiatrist working in private practice in Benoni, and is also a member of the Special Interest Group Cellular and Molecular for the South African Society of Psychiatrists. Lee did his undergraduate medical degree at WITS, qualified in 1987 as a psychiatrist, also at WITS, and has spent the past 30 years in private practice. He's got a specific interest in bipolar mood disorder and treatment non-responsive depression, but his interests include all aspects of the scientific basis of mental illness. Quibus and Lee, welcome, and thank you for joining us. I'm going to start out with a statement, observation, and, uh, and a question which I'll open up to both of you. Now, you both have an active interest in an involvement with this field. It's, 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 it's very technical, but I think it raises important therapeutic and potential ethical and, and philosophical issues. When I think about uh, genetics and psychiatry, I uh, recall a quote from a renowned researcher, Kendler, who stated, more or less, I'm paraphrasing, if you think we're going to find gene Y for condition X, forget it. And yet we do know that genes do play a role in emergent psychopathology or mental illness. And so that's why we take a family history, not just of illness, but also treatment and, and treatment response. But obviously genes are not necessarily the full story. We've also seen the emergence of something which I'd like to touch on, epigenetics, or simply put, environmental factors as potential modifying variables in gene expression. So the the idea of, of gene exclusivity appears to be maybe contestable regarding causation, and an understanding of the gene environment interplay may be a more generally understood role for genes in relation to illness and maybe even more so in psychiatry. So with those thoughts in mind, I'm going to open it up to you guys to maybe comment and, and get the conversation going. Kurbis, you're to my left immediately. What would you say? Yeah, um, Chris, I want to say three things. I think there's three pillars we need to keep in account when we just to contextualize our discussion. The first thing is the bioethics of biomarker measuring and reporting, because I think we're going to have a lot of that about reporting directly to the public. And the second thing is to understand that there's a great divide between tremendous progress in the field, the scientific field of molecular genetics, but there's limitations in using that for clinical explanations. And we can look at the complexity of the matters, which we will do, but there's also a discourse problem. And a lot of people say that the way that we define clinical phenotypes doesn't talk to genetics. So so that's also part of the discussion. And the last thing is, as far as we know as medical practitioners, Genetic disorders, true genetic disorders are rare diseases. And I think the one thing we must keep into account is if we talk about the genetics of schizophrenia, we will probably find that schizophrenia is a syndrome that consists of a thousand different rare genetic disorders. And, And we're not yet at the level of identifying that yet. So I think that's very important. Lee, what would you say? 
As usual, I was bringing a slightly different angle. Excellent. So I think what we see with genetics now and what we see with most biomarker research is that we're actually looking at small effects. Mm. So we're actually looking at conditions that will have hundreds, if not thousands, of loci that could be implicated. And in different people, different patterns of those mm. loci will be implicated. So when Kendler said gene Y for that, he's absolutely correct, except you could say there is a gene for Huntington. Yes. And there we see a very clear genetic defect. So when it gets to the brain presenting with a highly theomorphic condition with multiple symptoms and so on. So you can get the one too many effect of a gene. Yes. And there are with rare SNPs, there are with schizophrenia, there are variants that probably are like that. But even when we have the gene, it's still proving incredibly difficult to track that to the condition. But much more likely, we'll have many, many genes, each doing a little bit, and that's going to be even more difficult to track. Well, I think that puts a very important perspective on it because I think that the, the issue that Quirbus raised, one of the three things he, he mentioned, the, the advances in the field and the practical utility. These are two very almost divergent concepts at this point. And I think that just in terms of expectations, I think you've put a very realistic spin on what can be expected, which kind of begs my, my next question that I wanted to pose to you guys. There's a sense that genes are destiny. And so this is the question that I wanted to ask. Are genes destiny? Is it all in the genes and nothing more? And if that's the case, well, surely if we can identify the genes, we can fix the problem. Lee can do it because he knows all the numbers of how many proteomes there are and how many this <laughs> and that. But it is so complex. If you look at the sheer numbers, it's just there's so many crossroads in the pathway but i mean lee can explain that well, much better certainly what i've understood from what lee is saying is that there may be multiple genes which all make a contribution to what are essentially quite complex conditions these are not conditions which are limited they've actually got a very broad scope lee your comments yeah so i think part of the problem is psychiatric diagnosis the genes and, and the biomarkers we've got thus far are forcing us to rethink what we're dealing with. Right. The problem is we diagnose schizophrenia according to diagnostic criteria. We use those diagnostic criteria then to look for the gene. But if we look at, say, traits associated with schizophrenia, so not the formal diagnosis, then we find approximately 9,000 variants. With schizophrenia, the GWAS for schizophrenia, the latest GWAS has got about 207 genes. Just to clarify, what is GWAS? So that's a genome-wide association study. Right. And at the moment, the literature is absolutely rife with genome-wide association studies. And if we can just jump to the side and just say like Alzheimer's disease, where we all know APOE4, the latest GWAS for Alzheimer's disease published 38 genes, and now we've got 40. So that means that up to 40 genes could be implicated in different patterns in different individuals that we know of in ending up with the clinical state of Alzheimer's disease. So if I'm listening to what you're saying, 
I'm getting the impression that this is an overwhelming situation where we've kind of gone out almost, and maybe I'm mischaracterizing it, but on a fishing expedition looking for genes um, based on how we define conditions. And what we're coming up with is like a massive catch, and we're not even really sure what is specific and of what utility it necessarily is. Would that be correct in terms of how I'm understanding what you're saying? It's a little bit harsh, but it's more or less accurate. <laughs> okay, let me because the fishing, the GWAS is, is agnostic to diagnosis. Okay. And then you diagnosis then to pair or to allocate the particular patient so that they form part of the, the schizophrenia GWAS. Let me just add something to this in terms of the complexity. And we say if you look at genomics, you have to look at levels. Right. So let's start at the DNA level where there's 22,000 protein-coding genes, and we think that those genes are the destiny, but they're not the destiny. The first thing that they do, they talk about society of genes. So you have one gene, and you think this gene is the culprit. But then you find out that this gene works in combination with 20 or 22 other genes. And even if this gene is pathological, the other genes compensate for that. Mm -hmm. So it's the whole combination of those genes, and that's just on DNA level. Then the genes translate to mRNA or messenger RNA or microRNA, and there's a multitude of those things. So we're talking about millions of things that are involved in this variance. We don't know where the pathway is going at the moment. So what I'm finding quite interesting, just to keep it simple, is that we've got a society of genes, which I think is really interesting. So we're saying there's one gene that might be a dominant gene, but then there are a whole host of other genes which are influencing the behavior or the action of that gene in terms of whether we get an illness or whether we don't get an illness. And so we still haven't necessarily even worked out the complex interplay within these relationships in the society mm. of, of, of genes, genes yeah. so to speak. Lee? Yeah, so your dominant gene, because of small effect sizes, even that's going to have a small effect size, like 5%. But the interplay between the genes and the epigenetics, even the protein, is unbelievably complicated. We suddenly see what we are confronted with, and it's sort of like mathematically incalculable at the moment. I'm... So if we're going to do it by strength, the way we have been doing it, yes. I think going to take a long time. We are going to need some form, I think, of theoretical approach that helps us to integrate. And remember, we haven't even discussed the environment yet, which is contributing 40 or 50 percent to the the heritability of the genome, but the 40 or 50 percent are non-heritable aspect of the condition. So, I mean, this is, I suppose, what we would call epigenetics, where we're looking at the modifying environmental factors that influence the expression of the gene and why it is so important, actually, certainly in psychiatry, to be looking at context of illness and environmental factors in terms of family, family history, society, etc. So I think that there is much more to the individual than just their genes. The environment is also critical and the interplay between the genetic makeup of an individual and their environment. That's how I understand things. Well, I agree with you, Phil. Yeah, okay. So Kubus would agree with that, Yeah, that, yeah I'd agree with that absolutely. The point is that we actually don't have good ways of measuring the environment. And if you think about it, mm. the environment actually is interacting with the genome at, at just about every level. 
Right. So, for example, you know, at the molecular level, you may have some nutritional problem. And at the psychosocial level, you might have psychosocial problems. For example, I'll just give you that in schizophrenia, the theory is that if you grew up in an urban area, you're more likely to become schizophrenic. But in fact, there's a recent genetic study out to show that with a certain risk score in your genes, you're more likely to migrate to an urban area. In fact, that's for all the serious mental illnesses except ADHD, where you're more likely to migrate away from an urban area. And there's a genetic component to that. But remember, with every genetic component, there's an environmental component as well. I think we've got to get used to thinking like that. Well, I think that's very importantly because it just gives it a very kind of reality-based foundation that we're not just looking at one thing as the answer to everything, but that actually it's a lot more complex. But I suppose if, you, if you've been listening to this conversation, you're kind of getting to the point where you're thinking, well, why even bother? I mean, it just seems so overwhelming. Where are we headed? It seems that we don't necessarily have a clear direction, or am I misunderstanding the conversation? Kurbis? Well, like I said, is. At the moment, we know a lot about rare diseases and their genetic causes. And there's, in psychiatry, there are some of those diseases that we can use, and maybe there's a few other that we're missing that we'll still find out. In mental retardation, for one thing, we think mental retardation is, is one clinical syndrome. Right. But we know about all the illnesses. We know about fetal ketone urea, which is a genetic disorder. And people who have that disorder have mental retardation. But if you, if you diagnose this disorder, you know exactly what is the cause of the illness and you can treat that. So the more we can use genetics to find the pathological pathways, we can find cures for that. So I think that's important to keep looking. Of course. So there is definite utility. Um, I want to move on to something which is, uh, should I say, grounds for optimism. And I want to look at the issue of pharmacogenomics because I know, Quibus, you've got a very specific interest in that. And maybe we can explain just what pharmacogenomics is and what its utility is because I think ultimately it comes down to utility. What can we do with this information? So maybe, Quibus, and then, Lee, you can jump in as well on pharmacogenomics. Okay, so pharmacogenomics is, is, is about looking at the genes that affects the pharmacology of the medication we're using. Okay. So the pharmacology is pharmacokinetics right. and pharmacodynamics. So on the level of pharmacodynamics, you will look at the genes that, 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 are, that, that, that determine the receptors which you are targeting with your medication. Right. So if there's problems with the receptors, then there's no use using this medication. And, and, and then in pharmacokinetics, we know about the cytochrome P450 system, which is worked out. So the cytochrome P450 system is the system which metabolizes and breaks down drugs. Drugs, yeah. Right. And, and that is about how quickly is a drug available and will it ever be available? So in the terms of, of opiates, and I'm not very good at ma- um, name dropping, but I know there's a few um, doctors, anesthetists at the Washington University right. who's been using pharmacogenomics very well to look at the opiate treatments. Because people who have a, a gene that metabolizes your initial drug fast to an opiate, you will get a quick response. Right. But then the, the drug must be metabolized and broken down. Otherwise, it accumulates in your system. So if your genes that, that breaks down the opiate is slow, then that drug can accumulate in your system and you can get severe adverse effects. So the other thing that you can do is you can do blood levels to monitor it all the time. But it is a good thing to know beforehand what to expect 
in your patients. So I think that this has got utility in terms of deciding what drugs you might use, what dose you might use, and in what combinations you might use drugs. Because certainly in psychiatry, we tend to use drugs in combinations for our patients, not necessarily as a routine, but certainly with level of flexibility. Mm -hmm. Lee, what would you say in terms of pharmacogenomics? Yeah, I, I would say that, again, we're still really at the very basics here. We can look at the liver metabolism of the drug, and that is useful. And certain drugs do interact at that level and interfere with or enhance other drugs. Um, I think there's still much more to learn about those. Because there are many variants that we're not testing for. And to have a complete variant test for all the drug metabolizing enzymes, you know, increase the cost. It's going to come. But when we get to the receptors in the brain where there's a little bit of information, I think there we're looking at polygenic small effect size and it's quite likely that the information we have at the moment is also hopelessly inadequate. So you wouldn't I just want to say I don't want to put everybody off because we do have yes. the technology to rapidly screen millions or hundreds of thousands of variants in a single patient and in hundreds of thousands of patients. And these databases are being stored online and they are accessible to researchers. It's just, we've just started. Right. And it's going to take a long time to incorporate the full diversity of the human population. I keep saying there's now 7 billion variants on Earth, like viral variants. Well, each human yes. is its own variant. And until we get patterns that sort of are predictable from this huge number, and we will need huge numbers, it's kind of like insurmountable, but I do expect patterns will emerge at some point, and then it will become very useful. So I think it's really about practicality. Is it practical? Can I take a blood on my patient, send it to the laboratory, and get a profile that enables me to more specifically determine what is optimal treatment for my patient? So the sort of utility and practicality. And then, of course, the issue of affordability. I mean, how much is this going to cost? And I suppose that's about scale of economy, depending on how many such tests you're going to be doing. So I suppose those are the kind of factors, Lee, besides research itself, that will ultimately determine the usage or whether it finds its way into general psychiatric practice? I think it will. I think it benefits humanity. So I do think that the wealthy countries, the Scandinavians are very well poised to continue with this research because they have genomes on thousands of patients. They have electronic records from birth to death. They know every medicine you had, every reaction, side effect. So they have started with a database. They are still missing important things like detailed clinical information and environmental factors. But the whole, just about the whole world or many people, a representative sample of all populations from the world is required at that level right. before... I think we've got the answers. And that's basically the time it will take. So let me ask a more philosophical question based on our discussion so far. I mean, do you think psychiatry will ever become a laboratory-based discipline where psychiatrists will be more technicians than anything else and whether that will be good for patient care? So I, I know that sounds like an extreme scenario, but I'm looking at this idea of, of being able to pull a blood, do a profile, potentially even make a diagnosis, determine a treatment, and simply implement? Because I think that's one of my – I don't know if it's a concern, but it's, it's something that I think about. 
But I think it's important to say two things about that. The first thing is no, right. because we more than the sum of our genes. And there's lots of things that has an effect. And I mean, the psychiatrists work on the social level and the interactional level with their patients. Interpersonal psychology is part of psychiatry, and that will never be genetic. But the other thing that, that's a concern to me is which I mentioned in the beginning, and that's the bioethics of biomarkers. Yes. Because there's a lot of people that want to jump the gun. Clinicians are slow. We want to see everything. We want a big database to be yes. sure. But there are people who's marketing directly to the public. And I think that's a concern to us because... Could you just elaborate on that a little bit more? I think I know where you're going with that, but could you just elaborate a bit more? In terms of what you think is maybe coming out in advance of what it should? Yeah. Well... Definitely the genetic testing because people are seeing their genes and they're reading articles of people with genes in America or in Southeast Asia with no genetic link to them and they, they worried about that. And, and I mean, some of the laboratories don't only give it to doctors, they also give it to allied professionals. So when you say genetic testing, are you talking about screening for the potential for developing an illness, like with breast cancer? That, yeah. I mean, I'm looking at the breast cancer situation and I'm thinking of somebody like Angelina Jolie who went through her blood test and decided that she was at risk for breast cancer and had a double mastectomy. I mean, is that the kind of situation that we are concerned about, that people are maybe getting ahead of themselves in that sense? Yeah, that people are getting ahead of themselves. And then the insurance industry will also jump on that. Right. And so my question then becomes, if a test is available... Do you then suddenly become obliged to have that test to see whether you screen to determine what your profile is and what your risks are? But Lee said we don't have a database that's big enough to give that with any kind of surety. We don't know what the predictable value of those things are. And so that's the issue for me, Lee. What are your thoughts on what we've just been saying? No, I agree with everything. Otherwise, I might have stuck it in. I just say that. That a healthy lifestyle, because, you know, the environment really comes down to, yes, there are, there's trauma and so on, the kind of things that we deal with, but there's a healthy lifestyle. And that's, you know, kind of thing that we really do have enough evidence now to recommend that to everybody. And, you know, it's obviously ideal to expect everyone to take it up, but um, that people really need to think very carefully about not embracing the obvious things, exercise, eat healthy, get enough yes. sleep, that kind of thing, because it's really simple. I know. And these factors, <laughs> there's genes involved as well, but these factors are, are impacting your health at so many levels. You know, it almost sounds like we're going back to such a simplistic, basic approach, but yet these are fundamentals. Mm. What you eat, how active you are, sleep relationships, basic things that are part of everyday life that we need to pay more attention to before we start to necessarily worry about our genetic makeup, but looking at what's directly in our control in terms of our environment. That's what I think I'm hearing you say, Lee. Yeah, well, when you look at COVID, we have this highly complex thing with this complex condition. When you have a highly complex condition that you don't understand, you go back to basics. You quarantine, you wear a mask, you're socially distant. Those are not complicated procedures. Those are the things you do until you've got better information and a new treatment comes or something that gets rid of the problem or the vaccine or whatever it is. And we're in psychiatry. We're nowhere near those kinds of things yet. So we may as well emphasize, you know, childhood development, childhood nutrition, maternal care. Those are the things we really ought to be maxing because that's where we can get a lot of bang for the buck and all these other things which will come in the future we, may or may not 
give us something that we can use. Before I bring Kubis in, I mean, you just raised a very important issue, and I think it's maybe something that is often lost. I mean, adult psychiatry begins in childhood, in a sense. And I mean, I think there's an increasing emphasis now on child-rearing, childhood traumas, childhood issues as ultimately contributing to what we see later on in adults. And I suppose there maybe needs to be more of a focus in, in, in that sense. Is, is that what I'm hearing you say, Lee? Okay, 100%. So In utero, and in fact, even upstream, because if your parents are substance users or whatever, right. that's upstream, and the age of the parent and so on, so you know, even before childhood. Well, I think that's a very important point, age of the parent, and I don't know that there's enough written. I th- I'd seen an emerging literature on the age of the father, and that with increasing paternal age, there was increasing levels of psychopathology or increasing problems in childhood. I'd read about that. I'm not quite sure if that's what you were also alluding to. Kubis? Well, that is a genetic thing because a father's sperms change with age, and there's a lot of epigenetic changes on the father's sperms. And the older he is, the more mistakes there are on his sperms. And I think that's a very interesting issue which doesn't necessarily receive enough attention because i think there's a lot of focus on older fathers older mothers too so i would imagine that with older mothers something along the same lines occurs that there's greater potential for lee yeah well not with the over but we look at down syndrome so you know there are things yes obviously are now one of the issues that i think people might be concerned about when it comes to genetics is this whole idea of genetic or gene editing and how we play with genes to get desired outcomes, maybe to eliminate illness or create humans who are less susceptible to, to certain illness. And that, to me, seems to be moving into territory that is uh, somewhat controversial, but is possible based on existing technology I, without wanting to go into the full. Well, I'm actually going to say it. Clustered, regularly interspaced, short palindromic repeats – Good old, good old CRISPR, as they shorten it. And this, this whole issue of just basically, if, if I put it in lay terms, messing with the genes. You can actually play with the genes. I think that is a, a fear and a, and a concern. W- what would your thoughts be on, on that? Well, my thoughts is that that's dangerous to go there because we don't know what we're doing. Correct. And, and before we know what genes to target, we don't know a thing. I think what I wanted to say when you talked about lifestyle as a simplistic answer, right. I don't think it's a simplistic no. answer. I think it's a very advanced answer okay. because our genes has evolved over millions of years of evolution and the genes know best what is good for you and what is bad for you. And I think there's many illnesses that we're talking now about a mismatch between your genetic needs and what you do in your lifestyle. And it would be nice to know what, what does your genome require you to do and match that lifestyle. Now, that's very important. So, although I use the word simplistic, I think in a way what you're saying is, well, it may seem obvious, and maybe that's what I was Mm. more referring to, but what you are saying is that your genetic makeup requires you to live in a certain way. And so, for me, that's a very interesting Mm. concept. Lee, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, you should maybe a bit more nuanced, nuanced. So, for example, in schizophrenia, if you look at the GWAS for schizophrenia and the GWAS for BMI, so there's a body mass index. Yes. So we, we now mix databases to see what's the overlap and what's the impact. And basically, we see there's an enormous overlap between 
genes for body mass index and genes for schizophrenia. Interesting. But actually, when you mathematically model it, mm-hmm. you see that genes for BMI and schizophrenia are involved in weight loss. So okay. they were having a negative effect. So the direction of effect, it also happens with cortical structure. The cortical structure genes and the schizophrenia genes, if you mix them, there's a huge overlap. But the genes for cortical structure in different parts of the brain have different effects. So the same gene can cause cortical thickness increase in a certain area and cortical thickness decrease in another area. And that's the problem of just looking at the genome. It's how it all fits together. We're a long way away from answers. Okay. I don't know if that helps. No, no. I think it's very helpful because what I think you're really saying is, listen, it's complex. It's not straightforward. Kurbus, Lee, I want to thank you both for joining us. It was great to host you. Remember, there is no health without mental health, and I hope today's podcast has provided you with a greater sense of a complex issue, but one that has implications for all in society. Technology has much to offer, but there is also much to consider. I am Professor Christopher Paul Sabo, and this is Beyond Madness in proud association with Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave.